Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Your early days of photography, you had um, sort of been opened up to the world of, of photography when you were doing national service, hadn't you? And you worked as a photographic assistant and you'd at that point bought your first camera. But you had really kind of no idea of, of the possibility of a, a life, a career as a photographer at that point, did well, you? Well, I failed my test in the Air Force to become a photographer. I was only in national service, but I failed because I wasn't intelligent enough to read the theory paper and remember a line of it even. Um, but I, I'm more practical than I am, uh, you know, in, in, in another direction. So, I, you know, I, I've learned photography myself. I've, I've put together a life in photography. I've overcome my, um, uh, my, my mistakes, which I still make today, but nobody knows about them because they're made privately in my darkroom. Right. And, and I tear up the things that go wrong. What kind of things go wrong? What should you well, just I, make a print, I make a print and I look at it and I think, no, that's not good enough. And the other day, um, I was printing and I forgot to put the filter in the enlarger to upgrade the paper. And I, I stood there for five minutes making the print and I suddenly saw the filter on the right-hand side. I thought, oh, God, you know, there's another sheet of paper wasted. 25 quid in the bin, you know. So yeah. I'm very stingy about, well, respectful, really, about wasting film or photographic paper. Because, I mean, it's an amazing discovery of photography. You know, I'm in love with it, and it, it, it holds me to ransom every time I'm working. I'm thinking about the subject, but I'm worried about making mistakes. And so um, I'm, I'm really dedicated, and it strips the flesh off of me when I'm finished. I'm exhausted, yes. but I'm happy, and I'm, you know... But I take it to bed with me. I, I think about it, you know, um, photography, and I go back, like, 50 years thinking about the battle I was in in Vietnam when I'm alone in that bed at night. I, I, you know, I, d I can do without all the dreams and, you know, photography is a punishing experience. We were talking earlier when we were looking at some of these photographs and your sort of instant recall of many of the situations around them. I mean, I think we would all imagine those were things that stuck with you, but it was almost as if they were happening right in front of you again. I'm not sure I... Sometimes when I look at these pictures, I'm not sure I took them. Because there's such a, a variety of pain and suffering and particularly this picture, this picture is the most haunting. This woman, believe it or not, is 24 years of age. She's dying mm. of starvation. The worst possible death you could experience. And this girl is 16. Her name was Patience. These are Christian Africans uh, in Nigeria, Igbos. Then I go from there to Northern Ireland, which is a really uh, unattractive kind of look at it. I mean, it was raining and cold, and mm. there was lots of people, you know, violence and... And the history of Northern Ireland is a huge embarrassment for us, really. This is, this is an area where people live and the, and the British Army were throwing gas canisters and gassing all the locals. And, and I love this picture, really. It's sad that, that the bird happens to be dead, yes. but there's something really touching about something you see on the wayside. When you, you, my eyes are constantly scanning, yes. even if I come to London, which I don't like coming to London, but I, I love to scan everything. A lot of the photographs in this collection uh, of landscape uh, photography are of your home in Somerset, where you've lived for a long, long time. 35 years, yeah. It amazed me looking at them when there's a lot of frozen fields and water and all sorts of flooding. 
I mean, a lot of them look similar to other things that we see in completely other parts of the world. And I wonder if you're sort of just drawn to similar kind of things in different places. I'm drawn to darkness, really. I love the I mean, look at this Dickensian scene right next to Liverpool Street Station. Mm. That was taken in 1970. I went there the other day and uh, it's changed, of course. London's changing, England's changing, you know. And I've lived long enough to see the change. But mm. there, there, I, I like printing my pictures dark and if I'm not careful, there was a great photographer called uh, Joseph Suder who lived um, and in the end, these pictures were so dark, you couldn't see the picture. And, and I kind of like that, really. I like the idea of being drawn deeper and deeper in, into my own thoughts and into my own anger. I do have anger in me sometimes. You know, when you see starving children, or this burnt child in Cambodia, I'm bound to be angry. It would be wrong if I didn't feel angry, really. Of course. Angry. But what is, is the sort of chicken and egg uh, process there? Do you think you had that anger in you somewhere from um, the start and you what that led you to want to seek out these scenes of injustice and distress or was I, it something that they created no i think i grew up as a boy angry i grew up feeling disadvantaged because i grew up in a bad place and I, my father died when i was 13 i was angry about that and i used that the anger to, to to push myself through life and i i'm not angry now i'm i've, I've matured and i'm more calm because I live in the countryside, and the countryside makes me balance off the things I shouldn't be thinking about. Yeah. But um, I'm afraid, you know, I, I, you can see that this is how I grew up as a boy. Me and, you, me and my brother slept in a room like that without any wallpaper. Yes. But it was good, though, because we could nail nails in the wall and put all kinds of stuff up there. Yeah. But I mean, I think the way I grew up has shaped my life now, because I can understand poverty. Yeah, and there's a beautiful side to me, you see. I, I fell in love with India. I went to India with a man called Eric Newby, a famous travel writer, mm. and that was in uh, 1965. And I've never stopped going back since. It's one of those countries that visually, this is a, a poor old leper on Sagar Island, south of Calcutta. And in a way, there's something biblical about these two pictures. Uh, I don't believe in religion, by the way. I, I think I'm allowed to say that. Um, but, you know, a lot of the wars I've been to are about reli religious yes. differences. Yes. And, uh, and I can't understand, you know, if you have a religion, you should be allowed to practice that. And you should be allowed to be free practicing without anyone, like, you know, attacking you or murdering you, as in the case in the Middle East and these wars that are going on now. To what extent, when you are in that combat zone, the conflict zone, are you able to really think about what is happening on a sort of the kind of macro level and how much is actually just situating yourself in the moment to get the photograph, to make the record, to bear the witness? Well, I thought being, being a photographer in the beginning was going to be fun because I thought, well, you know, you're not that intelligent so you, you don't have to be accountable to political situations. And, and everything I've done in my life seems to be political. Even yeah. the countryside is politically under threat. Um, and being in places where you have... A lot of human responsibilities, and particularly if you're standing in front of people who are being executed in front of you, they look at you and think, you know, it's up to you to stop this. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm only a bystander. I, I'm hopeless and I don't have any, any, any reason to think I can stop anything. But this picture, may I just say, mm. which you've just passed, that woman was dying in that room of AIDS, and the sister sitting next to her 
um, said, said, I said, why don't you take this woman to the hospice? Because I'd been around the hospices. She said, we can't afford to get a taxi. I said, wait there. And I ran into the town and got a taxi and came back. And while I was negotiating with the taxi driver to take this lady to the hospice, her sister was carrying her on her back like a sack of coals, and I missed the picture. Mm. And I didn't feel bad about missing the picture because I thought, you know, you can't win every picture. It doesn't belong to you anyway. To be doing something, you know, people say, do you ever help people? And the one day I was helping somebody, I missed the picture, mm. but so what? You know, mm. it, I cannot beat myself up anymore. And by the way, this is the Temple of Bell, which ISIS blew up. And this is what's left of it. It's such a criminal, criminal act too. And when I went to this place, I went to the museum and they had gone around smashing all the faces on the things that the lovely museum director who was murdered couldn't take to Damascus. Yeah. So, and he had said he'd, he was going to die where he... Where he was, well, I he? Think, he wouldn't leave it. Well, they, they were pressuring him to say, where's the gold, where's all the hidden... Where's, they wanted gold, and, and he wouldn't tell them. And I met his two brothers and his two sons, and they took me to the place where he was executed, and they said, they said, go down, and he said, I'm not kneeling down. If you're going to kill me, the sons told me the story, you're going to kill me standing up. And a man beat him with a rifle behind his legs, and he collapsed and they decapitated him and hung him upside down. I stood in the very place, and I spent some time with this man, mm. and he was my age now. And, you know, to have that conviction and courage is extraordinary, really. Mm. Um, I don't know if I could do that, really. Uh, anyway. Talking of going back, really, the, the, oh, the, we, keep, we, yeah. we keep sort of uh, coming back to the same idea of these moments of great brutality, of a breakdown in kind of humanity, in a sense. And how will you actually manage to live with that? How you erase those images? You can't. Well, but how do you the, process them? I, I go to the landscape. I thought, I've started, I realised that I was never ever going to sit in front of a psychiatrist because people say, maybe you should see somebody. I wasn't behaving badly, acting weirdly. But, you know, a lot of people were concerned that maybe I was, you know, I could get, wind up going a bit bonkers. But... I started looking at the landscape and it was talking to me. It was saying, you know, come and be here. Come, you live here. Come and be deeper here. And I started going into the woods and I would see deer in the woods and things. Mm. And it, it was the one thing that was like someone giving me a, a feast, which I didn't have to pay for. All I had to do was to get out of bed on those frosty mornings and go over those fields and climb over the barbed wire fences and the gates and stand there. Mm. And one day I stood in a field waiting You'll, you'll see the picture later, it's full of rain and mud. And I saw a man coming all round the hedgerows with a little Jack Russell. And as he passed me, he never said a word to me. And I was the only one in that field. And he went all the way round the fields and he came back and he never said another word to me. <laughs> and I was, I was grateful, really, but I started realising I was looking at humanity in another way. I was more psychoanalyzing. You know, English people are very strange people, actually. <laughs> they, they never fail to surprise you. And many of the pictures are not here, really. But, you know, I've been around England and seen some of the maddest people you'd ever see. And uh, I, I always behave normal when I'm standing in front of them, but inside I'm, I'm raging with laughter and I'm trying not to let them think yeah. I'm taking the mickey out of them. Yeah. Really. 
Do you, in that moment, when you, you very often, as we've seen in these photographs, you get people looking directly at you, you're taking a photograph of someone looking directly at you. What is going on between you in that moment? I think even when people are suffering, they look at me. I wonder what's going on in their mind too. I think maybe mm. they're thinking, why is he here? What's he doing? Does he have the right to be, you know, stealing from us while we're dying and starving? Look at him, he's well fed. He can leave this tragedy anytime he wants. I, I know all the answers, all the questions, because I've deliberately put myself, I've, I've tried to switch around. I mean, I've been afraid many times in, in my life and I make out I'm not, and sometimes when I'm really afraid, I laugh. I know that sounds really odd, but in a way, I use every means to... I even go against my earlier principles of saying I don't believe in God. I, when I've been really in bad trouble in Cambodia, when I nearly got killed, I, I actually said, please, God, give me another chance, which is a terrible thing to, <laughs> to say when you turned your back on God, so to speak. But, um, you know, once you've had that other chance, you forget him very quickly. Yeah, of course. So there's a lot of hypocrisy probably in me, but I, I, I'm a survivor. I have to survive. And uh, I have to get through those bullets. And I have, I've had a few good hidings in prison in Uganda when I got Idi Amin had a bad day off and I wound up as a guest of his in the prison. And uh, it's really frightening to be in a prison. And at those points, I mean, you also had children, you had life back home. At those points, there was never a moment when you thought, if I get out of here, that's it. To be truthful, I wasn't really a great family man, really, because my children were always waving goodbye to me. And I thought that when I... Well, I remember one day looking back and seeing them and thinking, do they think he's not going to come back? So in mm. a way, I can't claim to have been a great father. I try to make up for it now. We're very close with my family. But um, I do, I do, you know, I sacrificed their childhood for my photography. A lot of professional people do that. Mm. I'm, I'm not alone in, in saying these things, but I, you know, when I look at all this thing, I'm saying, did I do the right thing? You know, all this work, 60 years, and I've really flayed myself. When I go in the dark room, I, it all starts again. And, and when I go in the dark room, these pictures actually talk to you. Yeah. They remind you. Yeah. They remind you that you're not one of them and you're rather privileged one of the others. You know, I mean, I... It sounds in many ways as though your body of work, I mean, obviously it's enormous, uh, but you are immersed in it. It's still present for you. The work that you did 50 years ago, 40, 30, it, it's all still there for you. I'm afraid it is, actually. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't act emotional, but I could not do this work if I didn't have an emotional compassionate spirit in me. Mm. And uh, the older I get, the more I realise um, how privileged I've been because I learnt photography by looking at the work of others as we all do in, in a creative world. We're, we're all inspired by... I mean, I've been inspired by a mad photographer called Eugene Smith who insisted on taking, you know, 400 pounds of equipment when he went off, particularly his Wagner collections, which is rather suspicious. And um, he was mad and he drank a lot and things. And, and, but, you know, I don't have to have any oddity about me to do this work. All I have to do is be inc I'm incredibly disciplined. I'm very tidy. I'm very... I, I, I know what I'm doing. Yes. And I know sometimes what I'm doing isn't right. I mean, going to war is... I, I, you know, there's voyeurism in it. 
and I have to say this because I've been telling an untruth, it's exciting war. You know, you're in a gunship and it's a firing and your shells are coming. It's Hollywood. There is adrenaline. Yeah, and... there's a druggy kind of thing about it. I yeah. got over that, though, I have to tell you, I got over it. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your experience in relation to that in Vietnam, for example? Well, Vietnam, I was weaned on Hollywood because, you know, at my age, um, 15, the war was over and, um, you know, I was getting Hollywood films. People did the classic death in the films. They'd fall back with their arms back. There was no blood. It was all rather mm. kind of comfortable and heroic. And, but when you see war and you, you see things that, you know, if I really think about it, I found a man one day who's been hit in the face with a bullet and most of his face had gone from under his nose right down to his throat. Mm. And I thought, my God, that could have happened to me. Mm. And, you know, mm. and I've seen the most terrible things without going into detail, not necessary. But I used to be fast. I was like a kind of antelope. I could run across battlefields. And then one day I ran across the battlefield and I lost my nerve and I lied down. And all these soldiers were running by. They kept saying, get up, mister, get up, get up, you know. And the bullets were raining across my head, you know. And bullets mm. break the speed of sound. They, they crack when mm. they go over your head. Mm. So you know it's the real thing. And uh, I lie there for a few minutes and I've never felt more ashamed of myself. But what I was saying in the background, what the hell has this got to do with photography? It's the same when I look at dying children. The war in Bangladesh, every night 10,000 people came and they moved further down the road the following day, but they left their dead children and their old people behind. So when you're there, you think, hang on a minute, you know, this is supposed to be my photographic life. And, and I'm looking around at dead children lying in, in groups. And, yes. and I, it, it takes a lot of strength to get through that. And it doesn't matter if you're the most well-educated man in the world or the dumbest man in the world. If you can't see that that's not right and it's not right you being there. Because people say, oh no, you've, you've changed our opinion, you know, I haven't changed anybody's opinion. Every time I photographed a war and I came back, um, a year later another war came, like the war in West Africa, where crazed 14-year-old boys were chopping off people's arms. You thought mm. that was bad enough, and then suddenly ISIS came along mm. and did terrible things to people, throwing people off of buildings and, and decapitating people on, on you know, social media. I mean, I really think the world is really going completely mad. But Don, that idea that you keep coming round to, the idea of justifying your own position in that landscape, you have somehow squared that circle. You must have done to keep doing it. Your well, I'm own. too old to go to war now. I mean, I still have it in me to think about it. Mm. I was in the Yemen this year. I was standing on a hill in the Yemen and I was knee-deep in bullet cartridges, Russian bullet cartridges. And I think, why am I here? This, this, why am I here? And I've got to stop this curiosity because it did kill the cat. Um, <laughs> and yet, as you said right at, at the beginning when you were talking about another photographer, I mean, you've never been drawn to photographing posh people at parties, have you? That's never going to happen. I like the idea of it. <laughs> um, uh, because, um, no, I'm much more comfortable photographing the man in the street, really. Because mm. mm. I am the man in the street. You know, you could heave all the honours on me in the world, I'm still the man in the street. And um, I still love my photography. 
And it, I laugh when I think of failing my RAF trait test to be a photographer. I laugh, I think, well, it just, well, I wasn't ready. You bought a camera, didn't you, during bought, that bit? Yeah. And then you pawned it? Well, my mother pawned it for me. And it, she got five quid for it. And then she got the camera out. And I took the photograph of the boys I went to school yeah. with in that derelict building. They yeah. Were partly criminal and partly everything else. So, in a way, I never really thought about being a photographer. It, I think it was, it chose me. I didn't choose photography. I think it chose well because they chose a person who is really dedicated. And by the way, most of my heroes were the people who, at the beginning of photography, like Alfred Stieglitz, Edward mm. Steichen, a man called Peter Emerson, who did the Norfolk Broads. You know, I've got a really good mind of historical um, photographers who I really admire. And I've drawn from those people. And um, for instance, Emerson, who did the Norfolk Broads, reminds me of the painter Millet. He did kind of working folk in the fields and people gathering reeds. I mean, very romantic. And there are other mad people like a man called Peach Robertson who did, he did more of the kind of um, people, stagey kind of things. Um, one of my pictures here is of a dead North Vietnamese soldier mm -hmm. with all of his possessions yes. scattered. And it was me that brought them together because I wanted to be that man's voice. He was only 18 years old. He had a bullet through his face that took all the back of his head away. And two American soldiers came. They, they were looking for souvenirs, and they were looking at his possessions and throwing them down and laughing. And they went away, and they were... And I thought, this is not right. And I, it's the first time in my life I interfered on the battlefield. Yeah, you, you curated that photograph to, yeah. to an extent. You rearranged Yeah, well, the I scene. just shoved it together, yeah. really, to show how pathetic. Yeah. You know, it takes nine American soldiers to put one man in the battlefield. And the North Vietnamese, you know, they were one, they were just one man carrying a, a small sack of rice. And they were very fond of writing letters to their mothers. You know, when you saw them dead, you think... And then one day I saw some other soldiers looting the body of a dead soldier, North Vietnamese, and they were tearing up these things, and I rushed in and I said, please don't do that, you know, can I have... And I got a diary, a little red diary, with the most meticulous writing, and pictures of Ho Chi Minh, and um, the Sunday Times who I worked with, they got a translator, and they translated it, and they published it, and we sent the diary back to the North Vietnamese um, legation in Paris, hope, hopefully that the diary would have got back to So, the... I mean, that was an intervention. Um, yeah. you know, you were, I'm thinking of you earlier saying, you know, people often ask you, do you ever help? Yeah. Um, and obviously, there are most of the time you can't. You've got to be the person taking the photograph and that time as you, you talked about with the, the two women, the woman and her sister, you were, you were quite happy to miss out on the photograph. Well, I think it was morally right yes. for me to do that, really. But, but you can't always do that. No, they are not. Uh, a man came to my house um, the other day because I was going to Syria and if you work for a BBC film, they, you have to have uh, 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 some training, some kind of crash training. And he spent four hours in my house, and when he left, I'd never remember a thing he said to me. He <laughs> was a, a first aid, he was a kind of, whatever, you, medic, you see. Um, Do you think but, you're untrainable then? Well, I, no, I, I am in some ways, but I, as a photographer, you go to the battlefield, you are not in any way medically, uh, you know, uh, 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 equipped to 
do anything really. Yes. You know. Yes. So, and that's not what I'm there for. If, if, I, if I did, I'd be cut down the middle, I wouldn't take any pictures. I would much be happy. I, I have to tell you now, if, if I had a choice in my life, I would much be happier to be part of the Médecins Frontières as a doctor than spending a whole life being a useless photographer who just brings back pictures. Being a doctor must be so rewarding in those places. I've seen them, they're amazing people. Have you photographed them? You must have uh, photographed I, Yeah, I've worked them. it. The thing about Médecins Frontières now, it's all become incredibly political, as life has, and you're not allowed to work with them anymore. You, you, you go to Paris and you go through it, and they say no, no, no all the time. So, you know, it's, it's not easy to do this work because there's always barriers to try and yes. stop you. Well, I was going to ask you about the times when you don't get the picture, and I'm thinking of, for example, the Falklands War the conflict that you didn't get to go to, you weren't allowed to go to. The Falklands, yeah, it's really, it's really painful to think about it, but, um, you know, if you don't get to go somewhere, maybe that's why I'm still alive. Um, the other thing is that... But you thought at the time, didn't you, that it was... There was a possibility that it would just... You would not take the right kind of pictures. That was why you were denied well, access. eventually, you see, the authorities got wise to the fact that the Vietnam War was lost and the Americans always believed at the end of the day it was media that lost them the war. It wasn't. It was the courage and tenacity of the North Vietnamese army. You know, they lost mm. a million people, those people. Mm. But no one, you know, Ho Chi Minh was never in a, a situation like most American presidents or any, any leader of a, of a country who would have to be responsible for the loss of those people. The Americans lost 50-odd thousand people and 300,000 wounded in the Vietnam War. Mm. It could have been higher if they'd have gone on and on with it. <coughs> so, um, politically, uh, uh, the, the Americans lost the war because partly that, of course, public opinion, but at the end of the day, they... Here am I talking about politics again. I'm a photographer and I've been sucked into this. Well, sometimes these, these kind of worlds overlap in, a, in an unmistakable way, and I'm thinking about... Um, you're sort of feeling that at the end of your, your time at the Sunday Times, for example, that there was an emphasis much more on kind of lifestyle photography, on exactly the kind of thing you weren't interested in doing. No, I mean, if you think about media now, that, um, you know, the newspapers are not really worth buying anymore. I'm, I'm probably pleased that my picture in the Sunday Times magazine, at least you can't wrap fish and chips in them. If, if you'd have bought the News of the World or something. But, so I, I, I worked for the right organisation and eventually I was forced out. I was sacked from the Sunday Times. I mean, I have to say, um, uh, new management came, Mr Rupert Murdoch came, and once again, politics, of course, you mm. know, monetary. So um, in, the, in the end, many of us at the Sunday Times got the bullet. Mm. And, um, mm. and I was 50-something it, it was, was years of age, and I thought it was a midlife crisis, really. Something that I didn't design, but it, suddenly I was out there, I'd missed the Portland's War, and I was pretty low on my knees at the time. And at this point you thought, what? How did you get yourself up off your knees? I kind of locked myself away in Somerset and, and lay, laid into the um, Berry Brothers and Rudd wine collection. I had. <laughs> and um, I tried to dust myself down and, you know, to, to rebuild my, my future life, what I felt was left of it. It wasn't easy, I was going through all kinds of mental, you know, eventually things come to your front door which are quite mm. hard without going into detail. Mm. So, mm. you know, I wasn't just going to keep getting away with it all the time. So, so in the so end... So there was I, a reckoning of some kind. Well, the reckoning, yeah, I, you know, I, 
I didn't have a great record myself of, um, you know, the way I kept abandoning my family and, and being dishonest and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think all human beings, all of us are flawed in some way or other, and I must hold my hand up. But, you know, combined with photography and the responsibility, you know, I thought I had to give it to my photography. It was a shameful mistake, really. Don, you do seem, though, in conversation to be somebody who does turn that spotlight on himself a lot. I mean, you seem very um, intent on examining your flaws. This is by no means something that everybody does willingly. I'm wondering if actually being a photographer has somehow kind of encouraged that sensibility, that you're always sort of looking. I think the chappies have had my hand in too many bloodbaths. You know, I've seen massacres on a major scale in, in the Lebanon. You know, I've seen hundreds, hundreds of people murdered one day in, in East Beirut, you know. Not only gunned down in front of me in groups, and then when I went back the next morning, they were all been poured petrol over and set. So when I went back the next day, all I saw was a great big molten black bodies, you know. Mm. And, you know, it's hard to justify, you know, being a photographer. I mean, photography's got nothing to do with it at the end of the day. I am a human being, and you go there, and, you, you know, photography was something that I was set out to enjoy. And in the end, it's been stolen from me, really. You could say, okay, why don't you just stop and go away and work in, you know, Sainsbury's or something. But I, I think I, in the end, I was so committed that I was almost like an alcoholic. I couldn't stop, I couldn't mm. stop, you know. Mm. There was a kind of addiction to yeah. it. I mean, I, I sound like the most boring person in the world, really, but, I, you know, I put my photography in front of everything in my life. Yes. And, and, and the intensity of it, you know, I, 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 looking at these pictures, I know I took them, really, but, you know, I can't tell you what it, how much they cost me, these pictures, in emotional kind of sense. And yet, you are still on the road. You're, you're working now, aren't you? Mm. You're taking photographs now. You're, you're travelling around the country. What is keeping you going at this point? I'm just worried about getting Alzheimer's. If I don't uh, occupy my brain, I know if I, I have a tendency to sit in a special chair in my house and read terrible newspapers, which my wife told me I shouldn't read. And, um, and I'm very happy doing that, eating biscuits all the time. And, you know, and, and, and I, don't, I can't bear to lay in bed in the morning. I don't know why. I have to get up. As soon as I open my eyes, I have to get up. I'm afraid of deteriorating, really. Right. I right. didn't look so good on that film in, in, in um, Syria. I don't want to get worse than that. But. But yesterday I was in my dark room, I went in my dark room yesterday morning, stayed in there for four hours making prints, and, and I think, here I am again, I'm, you know, I'm back on the old magnet again, I'm stuck to this dark room. And the dark room is a horrible place. It's, it's a place where you can analyze yourself, and you can die slowly with the chemistry, because it's very dangerous. And you can, you know, make... But when I make a good print, I, I can't tell you how happy I am, and then I'm afraid that when it's washing, and if I'm not looking, it might flip over, which it has done, and ruined. So four or five hours work gone. You know, so. That dark room, though, that feeling, do you ever let anybody else into your dark room? Is it always you alone in it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't like people coming in. I mean, um, when, people, when there's somebody else there, it's a huge intrusion. I cannot concentrate. And, you know, I don't feel right about somebody else being there. But something strange is going on when you're there, not just the straightforward business of working and creating the work that you're, to your satisfaction. There's, it sounds like something more profound is going on in I a way. I think it might be, if I make, make a rash and bold statement, 
It might be the closest you'll ever get to being in your mother's womb. It's, it's red, it's dark, and there's, a, there's an oddity about it. It's as if you're in a flotation. It's, yes. Because it's the red light, you know, it's not normal. So you don't feel totally sort of normally embodied the way you do when you're not in your dark room. It's a different experience. Well, when I'm not in my dark room, I dread going in my dark room. The night before I go in my dark room, I, I, I start lying in bed thinking, shall I put that on grade two paper or grade three paper tomorrow? I'm terrified the night before. It's just, it's just a matter of dedication and fear. There's always a streak of fear in my work because I'm a... I mean, look at this picture here. I call this picture the crucifixion. But the, the audacity that I said I've given up God, and yet I call that the crucifixion. There's so much confusion. And, but I, yes. when I see it, it reminds me of Jesus Christ. You know, so there's, there's turmoil that goes yes. with my work, really. You are currently not only make, making new work, but you are putting together a retrospective, aren't you, of your, yes. of your which is going to... Um, open next next year. Yes, it's at Tate Britain in February next year. Yeah. So I've assembled nearly 300 pictures for this exhibition. I could put a thousand pictures on the wall. I have a th I have 60,000 negatives in my house. Um, yeah. I lose negatives now and again because I don't have a system. Um, you know, <laughs> the idea of having a system would I, I would have to go and it would be like working for, as an accountant. You know, I don't like the idea of I lo I'm orderly and I'm tidy. But, but do you mean you don't know where a particular photograph is or a particular... I think I know, I think I know where it is. I mean, I have, I, but I've lost a few next recently. And when you're looking for one you've lost, you find another one you lost years before. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, you know swings it, and roundabouts. There is gratification yeah. occasionally. Um, I think we could listen to you all afternoon. Well, you wouldn't. No, you'd but... be bored. <laughs> <laughs> However, we cannot, unfortunately. That is the end of our time. However, you're going to go downstairs to the front hall and sign books we've got copies of this beautiful book landscape and I think another a couple but Don thank you so much that was such a privilege thank you very very much for joining us thanks for listening if you enjoyed this podcast have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on